Welcome to This Might Not, the podcast for conversations at the edge. I'm your host, Sean Kearney, and this episode you'll hear from Rick Leander, a consultant using behavioral economics and transformative technologies to help understand complex patterns. And we'll discuss what normal is and what might not be normal in a post-pandemic world. But first, news. I wanted to start off by saying thank you for the amazing feedback I've received on just the first few episodes. You know, doing a regular podcast takes a lot of work, and while some people do it to promote their brand or even make some money, this might not be about that. A friend of mine asked me, why are you doing this show? And my answer is to help promote the ideas and work of people like you. They give me a good excuse to find and talk with people who are willing to challenge themselves and others to push their thinking and their work into new realms of possibility. And I understand that even talking about new and exciting possibilities is especially hard given the serious issues that we're all facing today. And while the future depends on the decisions we make today, for many of us, it's hard to think about the future, at least right now. And we have a lot of hard work ahead of us. The primary drive behind this podcast comes from the idea that when we think we know what something is, we tend to stop asking questions. But knowing what something is doesn't really tell us that much. We all know what we can do to make things better, but nothing really changes until we know what we're going to do. For example, knowing education is the act or process of imparting or acquiring general knowledge doesn't tell us how we can impart or acquire knowledge. If beauty is a quality that gives intense pleasure or deep satisfaction to the mind, it's easy to miss the importance of the beholder of that beauty or the importance of the mind of that beholder. And knowing success is the accomplishment of one's goals or the attainment of wealth, position, or honors doesn't really help us know whether those goals are worth pursuing. And the most interesting and often most valuable thinking starts with exploring the edge of what something is and what it's not, but could be. In the midst of the global pandemic and its countless consequences, one of the things many of us are struggling to define is, what is normal? And when we look at the current state of the world in our lives, this might not be normal. So what is normal? Well, according to Merriam-Webster, normal is defined as, quote, conforming to a type, standard, norm, rule, or regular pattern, unquote. In your statistics class, you probably learned about the bell curve and normal distribution, where 68% of the items are clumped around the middle, the mean, or sometimes called the average. So normal could mean average or close to it. And dictionary.com defines normal as conforming to a standard or the common type, or serving to establish a standard, or of natural occurrence. But how can something conform to the same standard it defines? And who's defining and conforming to these standards anyway? My guess is these standards are anything but a natural occurrence. Yet another definition of normal is being free of any mental disorder. So what does that mean that when according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, an estimated 50% of all Americans will be diagnosed with a mental illness or disorder at some point in their lifetime? Does that mean that half of us are abnormal? Now, later in the series, we'll have several episodes on mental health. 
But for now, isn't it enough that another definition of normal is being free of any infection or other form of disease? By the time that you listen to this episode, the United States alone is likely to have more than 5 million confirmed cases of COVID-19. In his 1947 novel, The Plague, about a deadly contagion that devastates a quarantined town, existential philosopher Albert Camus wrote, quote, What's true of all the evils in the world is true of plague as well. It helps men to rise above themselves, unquote. Camus also wrote, quote, Nobody realizes that some people expend tremendous energy merely to be normal, unquote. And despite the tremendous energy many of us are struggling to find, this doesn't feel normal. And could never feeling like things are normal be the new normal? Now, along with Zoom fatigue and social distancing, many of us are already tired of hearing this term, the new normal. But that term isn't really new. According to Wikipedia, a new normal is, quote, a state to which an economy, society, etc., following a crisis differs from the situation that prevailed prior to the start of the crisis. But the origin of this term goes back to 1966, when sci-fi legend Robert A. Heinlein used it in his novel, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, where one of the characters describes the new normal as, quote, free of the authority, free of guards, free of troops stationed on us, free of passports and searches and arbitrary arrests. And in the book, as with most attempts to drive social change, the fight for that freedom, the freedom of that new normal, didn't come without its own problems. So when I wanted to speak with an expert on change, especially behavioral change and deep, significant, complex problems, I needed to look no further than my friend Rick Leander, the managing director of LFB Holdings. Now, LFB Holdings is a behavioral insights consultancy that works on behavioral economics and behavioral design to help companies do a better job of connecting with their customers, their patients, their members, and their employees. Rick is also the co-lead, along with me, of the North Carolina chapter of Transformative Technologies, a nonprofit organization focused on scalable technologies that increase human well-being and flourishing. You can learn more about Rick at lfbholdings.com and more about transformative technologies at transformativetech.org. I asked Rick about how behavioral economics might predict what will become normal in the next few years. One of the interesting questions that we're dealing with now is how are people's behaviors likely to change as a result of the COVID-19 virus and the resulting shutdowns we've seen? both from an individual perspective, but as well as a, a working perspective. And it's tougher to answer that question with more certainty than you might expect, because one of the things behavioral economics teaches us is that changing behaviors, particularly over the long term, is really, really difficult to do. Humans are creatures of habit. Uh, Newton's first law applies very strongly in behaviors. We continue to do what we do, and we continue to not do what we're not doing. So it's going to be really interesting to see how things develop. One of the things that we've been telling our clients is that this is a great time for experiments. The world is always a great laboratory, but particularly in times of crisis like this, 
it's a really good opportunity to test different approaches and see which ones seem to have the biggest effect. My personal sense is that we're going to see some behaviors that will be really difficult to shake. For instance, there's a lot of talk about how long it might take for group events to come back, might take a long time for people to fly, might take a long time for people to be comfortable assembling again. And yet I have a very good friend who's a rabid LSU fan, and he swears that as soon as the football team start playing again, Death Valley in Baton Rouge is going to be overwhelmed with people and nobody's going to care. So it's going to be interesting to see how things shift. And my sense is we'll see some things that will shift in the short term, but will probably slowly migrate back to a lot of the patterns we're used to seeing. Given that external events have such an impact on our decisions and behaviors, Rick and I then spoke about how ecosystems and environments, including both public and private spaces, play a role in further shaping our habits, health, and expectations. Think about what happens to commuting spaces when half the population doesn't have to commute every day. Suddenly, places like L.A. and San Francisco don't seem like such a terrible place to live on a commute side. But then you deal with this issue of if being in close proximity is going to be a real problem, how does that square with the notion of de-densifying? So when you think about the notion that cities are going to have to de-densify because being in close proximity to one another is sort of bad for your general health, that'll be sort of the, the counterbalancing part of that as well. The other thing that's interesting to think about is what are the other things that change if people start working regularly, even part-time from home? Think about people in the suburbs who are used to working from home when there's snow days and they set up their laptop on their dining room table and live with the inconvenience for a couple of days. Well, now if they're working from home two or three days every week, what happens to their space requirements in, in residential homes, right? They're going to need a dedicated space away from the kids and the dogs and all the rest of the stuff that goes on. And while that might be possible in the suburbs, think about the three roommates living in the 1,200 square foot apartment in New York or San Francisco or Chicago. Now they're all working from home, trying desperately to figure out a way to, to give themselves some space and some quiet. So it will be interesting. I think we, we clearly are going to see an uptick in the number of people who aren't working from dedicated offices. And I think the interesting thing for entrepreneurs to think about is what does that do to all the kinds of services that businesses need today in offices that might change? And what are the kinds of services that people working from home are going to need? For instance, might there be a need for more concierge kind of services? If I'm not driving back and forth, Every day, maybe having somebody pick up groceries or the dry cleaning or picking up the kids from school, maybe those become great opportunities for people to fill that gap as people's patterns change. I then asked Rick about the potential of transformative technologies to help us create new opportunities and maybe new problems. The, there is actually a global ecosystem formed on this notion that Technology can really help with a lot of the problems that exist in the human condition today, whether it's work or life or relationships. 
one of the things I'm fond of saying about transformative tech in general is that it's focus or one of its focuses is to work on problems that technology has either created or made much worse. You know, in this era of social media, what we find is that the number of people who talk about being socially disconnected or depressed are growing while we have all these tools that are supposedly focused on helping pull people together and helping you find people with similar likes and tastes. So the the notion that transformative technologies might be a really good place to use technology to fundamentally deal with some of these issues is, I think, really interesting. One area that's beginning to get a lot of attention is the potential to use transformative technologies, kinds of concepts in physical health to provide a constant ongoing snapshot of your health. Because if you think about it today, what we see are slices in time. And often those slices are distant, right? If you're getting your blood tested every quarter for hormone treatments or every six months for some other thing, what you're getting actually is, a, is to a large degree a very narrow slice of what's really going on in your life. And so if you think about a transformative technology approach that would allow you and the people you trusted, like your personal physician, to monitor your health in almost real time, Think about the impact that would have on chronic diseases, our ability to get ahead of a lot of things that we tend to only discover very late in the cycle, and then it's either difficult or impossible to treat. So from a physical perspective, I think transformative technologies has got a really interesting role to play. But even more, I think, is the potential for transformative technologies to focus on mental health and mental well-being. As I said, we see depression levels rising. The number of people who report being socially disconnected or isolated continues to grow. And the ability of transformative technology approaches to help people with mindfulness and wellness, to help them identify potentially uh, destructive thought patterns and help them work through a better process for doing that. I think all of those things have really tremendous promise. We'll be right back with more of our conversation after this word from our sponsor, Yes LMS. So what is a learning management system or LMS? For most organizations, their LMS is the place where learning goes to die, where people are forced to take courses and quizzes they don't want or things they'll probably never use in a system so complicated or otherwise known as feature-rich and so user-unfriendly that people have to take even more courses just to learn how to use the thing. And for the users and designers, all this work and hassle comes down to little more than checking a digital box to get people off some compliance naughty list. So given that definition, our sponsor, YesLMS, might not be a learning management system. YesLMS is really more of a learning mastery system designed to help people share and learn relevant skills they apply to get better results in the real world. Yes, LMS is a beautiful, modern, cloud-based system that's super easy to use, fully accessible, and built for teams who want to do more than check compliance completions and actually move their mission forward. So if you're a small business, education institution, or nonprofit, YesLMS has options tailored to get you up and running quickly with exactly what you need. 
To schedule your demo and see what an LMS can be, visit yeslms.com today. With unpredictable change to come as a result of disruptions in our ecosystems, environments, habits, and personal health, I then asked Rick Leander to share his thoughts on how economic forces and society as a whole are likely to change as well. There are a number of ways where our current environment has the potential to drive a lot of really good change for the better. And I've got a number of things that I would like to see happen, and I'm relatively optimistic that we might be headed in that direction. One of them is that I hope that what we're seeing, particularly among businesses and particularly among large businesses, is the recognition that Milton Friedman's statement that the one and only one social responsibility of a business is to increase profits. I'm hoping that is finally going to die because as people look around, they realize that businesses ought to be recognizing they've got a lot of constituents. They've got a constituency that is made up of their employees and their staff members. They've got a constituency of the communities they live and work in. Their constituency is the environment. And for too long, we've been focused on this notion that if we focus on profit, everything else will take care of itself. And that clearly is not the case. And so as we've seen increasingly through this pandemic, companies stepping up and setting aside at least concern about short-term profits and some companies doing some really admirable work about promising not to lay off employees and converting their workforce to generate goods and services that first-line healthcare providers need, I think is sort of very, very inspiring. The other thing that I hope we begin to focus on as a society is this notion that while growth is important, resiliency is even more important. But I hope one of the lessons that we've learned is that growth alone is not much of a protection when you run into situations like this. And that the need to have resiliency in all aspects of society is really important. And so a renewed sense and a renewed focus on resiliency, which requires change in behavior, which behavior economics would suggest is difficult, but not impossible. And I think the final thing to keep in mind as we think about these potential changes is that knowledge alone is a really bad driver of behavior change. People know all kinds of things and they don't act on it. And so I think it's really important that we recognize that there are lots of things that impact the way people analyze choices and make decisions and shift behaviors, and that we ought to stop thinking that knowledge alone is going to be the driver that does that, and that there's a role for all of us as we think about the way we restructure a resilient economy to do a better job of managing those things. So you may have heard the saying, the future isn't what it used to be. Yeah, Yogi Berra said that, right? Well, maybe, but the actual quote comes from the French poet Paul Valéry commenting on the rampant pessimism in post-World War I Europe. And it's hard to think about the future when the present is so uncertain. As a psychologist, Abraham Maslow illustrated in his hierarchy of needs, when we're worried about our health, our livelihood, our ability to work and pay our bills, when we feel overwhelmed with chaos and have no idea what to expect in the coming days and weeks, it's really hard to let go of the old normal. When we can't be sure of anything, it's also really hard to do anything. 
But the one thing we can be sure about is that we can't go back. We need to find our way forward. We need to rethink normal beyond what's natural or some standard or routine that we're supposed to conform to because it's what we used to do. And we aren't gonna change everything at once. We could start by just changing the tone of the questions that we're asking ourselves and each other from the fear of what are we gonna do to the determination of what are we going to do? We can still think about what normal is and we could also start to think more about what normal could be. So my thanks again to Rick Leander of LFB Holdings and transformativetech.org. And my thanks also to you for listening. If you wanna hear more, please subscribe, share with others, and let us know how we're doing with a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Every bit helps and we appreciate your support of the This Might Not podcast. In future episodes, we'll explore other big ideas around mental health, freelancing, science, magic, music, hypnosis, design, and much more. And if you have ideas for topics or people we should interview, please reach out to me directly at Sean, S-E-A-N, at thismightnot.com. Thanks again, and remember the next time you think you already know what something is, consider this might not. <laughs>